universe is huge. It's so huge that it's hard to wrap my brain around. Astronomers captured images of 14 galaxies, so far away that the light we captured was actually from an event that occurred 12 billion years ago. The universe is so huge and it's still growing. There's just no way for us to be certain that the human race is the only intelligent race out there. Science fiction has explored the impact of other intelligent beings for generations. We're consumed with the idea of interacting with extraterrestrial life. But what would this alien life look like? How will we come into contact with them? And what do we say to them? This is Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly. In this episode, I'm talking about extraterrestrial life. So this episode marks the first in a mini-series about space. This first episode is about extraterrestrial life. Next episode is an interview episode where I talk to planetary scientist Harriet Brettel, and then we will turn to interstellar travel and colonizing space and other planets. I love science fiction that takes place in a post-Earth future, and I'm excited to spend a big chunk of time talking about it. But first, let's turn back to the first episode. Aliens. Extraterrestrial life. Intelligent life. There are many terms for sentient beings that live on other planets or live in space. So much science fiction involves alien races, either discovering alien races such as the X-Files or Arrival, warring with alien races like Pacific Rim or the Star Trek movies, or living with alien races like the Star Trek TV show or like Becky Chambers books or the TV show Defiance I was a big fan of a few years back. These are just the examples off the top of my head. In his book, Blockbuster Science, David Bernstein talks about the day the Earth stood still, the black and white film from 1951 and the short story it was based on. Bernstein wrote that the Cold War was often the inspiration for alien encounters. During that time, we were afraid of the other, and we were afraid of weapons of mass destruction. The day the Earth stood still was very much an exploration of those Cold War feelings. Another story you might be familiar with is H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, in which aliens come down to Earth and it ends terribly. In 1938, Orson Welles did a live broadcast of War of the Worlds. Good heavens! My goodness, that's an enormous crater! The meteorite must have been huge! Not a meteorite, look. Let me lift my lantern a bit higher. It's been made by the impact of a projectile. It's furrowed its way along, went right through a fir tree. Look in the heather. Fire where it streaked past. And no meteorite did that. Look at the bottom of that hole. A cylinder. Don't get too close. The heat from it's incredible. It's what we saw the other night, James. It's what we saw firing from Mars. And audiences who turned into the station late did not hear the introduction announcing it was just a story. So they panicked. They thought it was real. It could be a testament to how good Orson Welles is at acting, or it could be that War of the Worlds, broadcast in that way in a medium that people trusted for news, plagued on real fears of invaders. Personally, I prefer speculative fiction that's a little more cheerful when it comes to intergalactic relations. Like Star Wars, for example. The world in Star Wars is so immersive because of how detailed the special effects are and how imaginative George Lucas was. Sure, when Lucas started relying on CGI, it became a little bit of a different story, 
But I've always appreciated the idea that aliens and humans could live together peacefully. That the worst villain, Emperor Palpatine, was in fact human. I know I've mentioned it a few times, but I cannot recommend Becky Chambers' books enough, especially when it comes to a new take on alien life. In her world, Earth has colonized Mars, and humans have reached other galaxies with intelligent life by punching through space and building bridges between two galaxies. I'll talk about it more in another episode about interstellar travel, but because of this technology, humans have been able to meet four or five other alien races and have created a government like the UN. A lot of the conflict comes from these relations between such different races, but it's not the old story of conquerors and conquests. These alien races are very diverse-looking, too. Often in science fiction, aliens look similar to us. They have a humanoid head, two eyes, two feet, and two arms. They might be covered in scales or fur, but we never worry about where their faces are. This is probably due to the fact that in television and film, we only had human actors to work with. We could dress them up, but they were obviously still humanoid. In recent years, with the invention of CGI, we can be a little bit more imaginative. But a lot of the times, these aliens are still humanoid. Those thin gray bodies with oval heads and huge black eyes. We've seen them a lot. They're programmed into our smartphones as the instantly recognizable alien form. Yet they often have very different social norms and values. They are a reverse mirror of human races, a vehicle for the science fiction author to challenge our own views of humanity. For example, in the sci-fi network show Defiance, humans and aliens were still recovering from a war and settling down into like a wild west of sorts. Immigration tales were being retold, but from the perspective of literal aliens navigating Earth. We're not sure what intelligent life will look like. We don't know if they'll be carbon-based or some other element like sulfur or silicone. If instead of water, they'll thrive on liquid methane. If they'll walk on two legs or have segmented bodies like ants or one single section like a slug. We tend to be very presumptuous about these hypothetical aliens, and we're also very Earth-centric. Like, we more than likely imagine aliens to be similar to us. I read a roundtable discussion among scientists in this field on Gizmodo. I'll link to it in the show notes in the blog. Basically, all of these scientists say that we have to let go of our assumptions about the human race being the given. Like, we evolved in this Goldilocks scenario on Earth. Not too hot, not too cold. And we evolved in this area of the Earth, namely Africa, that required us to stand on two legs and for our eyes to be on the front of our face. Our brain is at the top of our body, housed in our skull, you know? But even on Earth, that's not always the case. One scientist talked about the octopus as an example of different intelligence that we may find on other planets. Octopuses are my favorite animal, because of how strange and alien they are compared to humans. Sure, they have a brain in their head, but they also have neurons or brain cells in their arms, like eight little brains. They process their environment limbs first. If we're going to be searching for extraterrestrial life, we have to keep an open mind about what this life could look like. If we're turning our eyes toward the sky, we can't just be looking for other humans. When Gizmodo asked astronomer Seth Shostak what the closest thing on Earth is to aliens, he talked about insects. Looking at them up close, they do not look like they belong on the same planet as us humans. I follow an account called Ask an Entomologist on Twitter, and the other day they had a thread about a bug who thrives in crude oil, 
like in the tar sand pits in California. It's toxic, and it can be over 100 degrees in there. There are bugs that can live in kerosene and turpentine. These are the kinds of living organisms scientists believe they'll find on other planets or on moons. They'll have to be tough to survive in these kinds of environments. NASA's theory on how we'll find sentient beings basically depends on us finding large amounts of life in general, like bacteria or insects, and by first finding atmospheres that can sustain life, using telescopes and prisms. Sounds weird, right? Here's what NASA says on their exoplanet website. Exoplanet meaning planets outside of our solar system. How will we know when we find life? The answer has a lot to do with rainbows. As Isaac Newton recognized, white light shot through a prism, or through curtains of mist seen with the sun at your back, is exposed for what it really is, a band of color spanning violet to red, characterized by wavelength. Chemicals and gases in the atmospheres of planets can absorb certain slices of this band, called a spectrum, and leave behind a narrow black gap. When we analyze light shot by a star through the atmosphere of a distant planet, a technique known as spectroscopy, the effect looks like a barcode. The slices missing from the light spectrum tell us which constituents are present in the alien atmosphere. One pattern of black gaps might indicate methane, another oxygen. Seeing those together could be a strong argument for the presence of life. Or we might read a barcode that shows the burning of hydrocarbons, in other words, smog. Even without listening in on their conversations, the aliens' reasonably advanced technology would be known to us by their pollution. And this is just looking for compounds that made life like us. Other scientists are trying to narrow down what other compounds could make other kinds of life. And NASA is exploring other avenues, too. So when we use telescopes to look at the stars across the universe, we pretty much can only see the brightness of stars. Which makes sense. Stars can be as bright as our sun. But it means we can't see any planets that are close to these stars. So NASA is creating the starshade. Muting the overwhelming brightness of stars to catch glimpses of other planets is the subject of intense focus at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The starshade is a gigantic mechanical sunflower the size of a baseball diamond, which would unfold its petals in space to block the light of target stars. A space telescope would be parked some distance behind it, lining up in near-perfect synchrony. The intricate pattern of the starshade's petals is designed like a manic goalie, NASA's words, not mine, prevents leakage of photons around the edges of the starshade, eliminating as much residual glow as possible. The result, formerly invisible planets, pop out of the background, allowing the telescope to capture direct images as they orbit the star. We have many bright minds working on finding extraterrestrials. We have those scientists looking at the chemical makeup of other planets and moons. We have other scientists listening on, on radio waves to find a foreign signal, not to mention sending satellites into empty space and sending rovers to land on planets. It's going to take time. We can only hope that while we're looking for extraterrestrial life, someone else is looking out for us too. This episode was brought to you by Audible. If you listen to podcasts, then you will love listening to audiobooks. In the car, doing laundry. Audible.com has 180,000 titles to choose from, including titles I've mentioned here today. I recommend Andy Weir's book, Artemis. Wonderfully narrated by Rosario Dawson, this audiobook had me on the edge of my seat. 
You can get this book or another of your choosing by going to audibletrial.com slash fact and sci-fi. That's audibletrial.com slash F-A-C-T-A-N-D-S-C-I-F-I. In 1977, a record was launched into space that included images and music that were supposed to tell aliens everything they needed to know about us humans. This song, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, was supposed to represent the human feeling of loneliness. Scientists and speculators have disagreed on what we should send to space for our first contact. Neil deGrasse Tyson thinks we should send mathematical equations. Surely numbers are the same regardless of where in the universe you are. In the film Contact, they communicate through prime numbers. Math would tell extraterrestrial life that we are intelligent, and if they receive and decode the message, then they must be intelligent too. But we've also wanted to tell other life forms about who we are. That's why we send music and diagrams about what humans look like, and our classic art. How do we distill everything we are on a flash drive, or on a record, or in sound waves? And should we really try to put our best face forward, or should we be honest about what aliens might find here? The Golden Voyager record that this song played on previously left out images of war, poverty, and strife. I guess it's best to leave that as a surprise? I don't know. The International Academy of Astronautics, a non-governmental organization, created a guide for what to do if we ever make first contact with extraterrestrials. It's called Declaration of Principles Concerning Activities Following the Detection of Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And it's mostly about how do we avoid a panic regarding discovering extraterrestrial intelligence. So here it is in full. And I got this from Blockbuster Science. 1. Any individual, public or private research institution or governmental agency that believes it has detected a signal from or other evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence, i.e. the discoverer, should seek to verify that this isn't human-made or a natural occurrence before going public. Sounds reasonable. 2. If the signal can't be traced to a human or natural source, then prior to making a public announcement that ET intelligence has been detected, the discoverer should inform all other observers or research organizations that are parties to this declaration. They need to do their own checking for confirmation. The discoverer tells national authorities. 3. If the signal is credible, then the discoverer should inform international organizations, including the Secretary General of the UN, in accordance with Article 11 of the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other bodies. 
I didn't know such a thing existed. Four, the confirmed detection of extraterrestrial intelligence should be announced to the public promptly. The discoverer should have the privilege of making the first announcement. Five, all relevant data should be made available to the international scientific community. And six, the discovery should be monitored and recorded for further analysis and interpretation. The data should be made available to the international institutions. If the evidence of detection is in the form of electromagnetic signals, the parties to this declaration should seek international agreement to protect the appropriate frequencies. Wow, that's really specific. How did they come up with that rule? All right, number eight. No response to a signal or other evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence should be sent until appropriate international consultations have taken place. Lastly, number nine. If evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence is confirmed, then an international committee of scientists and other experts will act as advisors for continual observation going forward of the discovery. As you'll have noticed, these are good steps to avoid a war of the world scenario. I think the film Arrival portrayed the complications and complexity of making first contact of multiple nations collaborating to communicate with aliens very well. In fact, some of the most tense situations in the movie came from the military and scientists just trying to get on the same page. Arrival focused on the complexity of language, how one misunderstanding could lead to complete disaster. I was kind of reluctant to bring this up because there's still some uncertainty about what it was. It's unidentified. But last winter, the New York Times reported released footage from the Defense Department's Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. In 2004, off the coast of San Diego, a Navy commander was flying a jet, and he came across an unidentified flying object, a UFO. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. Oh my gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. The now-retired Navy commander, David Fravor, swears it flew like nothing he had ever seen. Easily accelerating against the wind with no visible signs of propulsion and hovering with no visible signs of lift. The military had an entire program researching UFOs that was classified until just recently. The Pentagon says the program was shut down in 2012, but the New York Times says that the Defense Department still looks into unexplained UFO phenomenon, unofficially. Senator Harry Reid from Nevada was the one who pushed for these records to be released, having had a long-time interest in space. Now, it's possible that these flying objects were high-tech drones, but nobody can say for certain. While most speculation I've seen among scientists leans toward the probability being that there is intelligent life somewhere in the universe that we just haven't seen or met yet. However, the farther away they are, the less likely it is that we will communicate with them. Our strategies for communicating with intelligent life kind of relies on the assumption or hope that aliens will have figured out interstellar travel and will be passing by our solar system. If they're millions of light years away, our radio signals may reach them after their sun has exploded or something, or at the point where they haven't developed technology to understand our message. Conversely, aliens could have reached out to us a millennia ago, and we didn't have the technology to understand it. 
so they assume there isn't intelligent life over here. Of course, scientists are theorizing on communication methods that wouldn't take that long of a time to reach its recipient. Blockbuster Science talked about quantum teleportation. Yes, you heard me correctly. That transfers the qualities of particles onto other particles so that they are the same. Scientists call this entanglement. And once they are entangled, they can still be the same even as they move. Researchers have been able to create this in labs, but it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. If I were to show you a picture of this research, you'd see two lights in a lab, and you'd just think, okay, sure, there are two lights. But it isn't two lights, it's one light particle or photon in two places at once. And it's that kind of science that people believe could lead to communication between two planets. This quantum communication would be instantaneous, in which sound particles or wave or whatever stuff they decide to use as communication would appear simultaneously at point A and point B. It's not like communication where there is a lag between sending and receiving. Of course, at this time it's all theoretical. The longer the distance, the less entangled particles become. But it's the most interesting theory of communication I've found to solve this hypothetical future problem. We've covered a lot of information this episode, from bugs that live in oil on Earth, to UFOs in the sky, to atmospheric particles on exoplanets. Perhaps we'll have clearer answers in our lifetime, but I hope you've learned something today that you didn't know before. Keep your eyes out for research on exoplanet atmospheres, giant telescopes and sunshades, or even the Pentagon, I guess. I think the truth will come from all of these different areas, all of these different people asking the same question. Are we alone? Next time on Fact and Science Fiction, I'm going to be talking to Harriet Brettel, who studies Jupiter using the techniques I discussed this episode. We also talk about our favorite science fiction and more. Read and review Fact and Science Fiction on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast. I want to hear from you. What science fiction do you appreciate for its portrayal of aliens? Do you think we'll make first contact in your lifetime? Tweet me at Fact and Sci-Fi or send me an email at factandsci-fi at gmail.com. That's fact, A-N-D-S-E-I-F-I. Check out the script for this episode and other content on the blog at factandsci-fi.blogspot.com. Research from this episode came from Blockbuster Science by David Siegel Bernstein. What Do Aliens Look Like by Ray Paletta and exoplanets.nasa.gov. And Glowing Auras and Black Money, the Pentagon's Mysterious UFO Program by Helen Cooper, Ralph Blumenthal, and Leslie Keane from the New York Times. I used clips from War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, adapted by Sidney Williams and hosted by Tom Mitchell, and Blind Willie Johnson's Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, both licensed under Creative Commons license. Sound effects from soundimage.com. And lastly, thanks for listening.